Stories Bigger Than Texas, the Alamo podcast. An 1830s doctor, a frontier wife and mother, soldiers on the brink of battle. They're all right here at the Alamo in the form of living historians, people whose mission is to bring the past to life. Today, we reveal how living history operates, the people behind the characters, and the unique perspectives they show of the people who lived and fought here. I'm your host, Emily Bauckham. We're joined by several members of the Alamo's Living History team. We have Angela Wolfgram, Director of Living History and Public Programs. She's here with Laurel Smith and Vincent Iannicelli, two living historians you'll see around the Alamo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us today. Angela, describe for us what living history means. How is it different from being a reenactor and what makes it unique? So living history can probably best be summed up by saying that it's an educational strategy, usually employed at museums and historic sites, that really centers upon storytelling, material culture, so the stuff of history, the items of history, um, recreated immersive environments, and historical processes. So it's kind of um, a recipe of all of those ingredients. Reenactors are really more focused on recreating some specific sort of event. A battle. A battle, a court case. I mean, people recreate all sorts of things, but most of the time people think of like Civil War reenactors. And a lot of times this is more a hobby. Um, They're showing up to portray this particular situation and then they go back to their everyday lives. Living history is really used as a professional educational tool. And so it's unique in that I feel it really humanizes history. Would you say that history and accuracy are the hallmarks of what you and your team do? One of our processes for every story that we're telling is research and development. So uh, we are constantly using primary sources. So those are documents and things created during the time in which you're studying. So we're looking at Everything from letters to artwork to military regulations to inventories, all sorts of documents that tell us about whatever topic we're going to be discussing, what portraying, people teaching. Wore, what they did for exactly. fun, how they got their food. Exactly. So, I mean, research is really a huge part of what we're doing. Uh, I think people have a misconception that living history is kind of just people dressing up. And certainly putting on the historical clothing or the recreated historical clothing is a huge component of that. It's part of the immersive process, but there's just a lot of prep that goes into what we do every day. And we're lucky enough to be joined by two very active members of your team. If you've been to the Alamo, you have no doubt seen Laurel making her own textiles and clothes like you would in the 1800s. Laurel, what drew you to living history? I actually didn't grow up here in Texas, so I didn't get the Texas history as a kid. Um, I grew up in Iowa, and Iowa has living history farms in Des Moines. And so as a child, um, it was brand new, but we would go like every other year or something like that. And they focus more on 1850s because that's more apropos for for Iowa. But I was exposed to the quilt shop and the potter and, you know, the guy with the Jews harp, you know, the, the jaw harp and learning how to play one of those. But it just kind of opened my eyes to history. Uh, Once we did move down to Texas, and I have been in Texas longer than I lived in Iowa, so hello, true Texan here, as much as I can be, we 
moved to San Antonio, you have to do your pilgrimage to the Alamo, of course, and we ended up with an outside reenacting group. But we started doing that, and I've been doing living history-type activities for 26 years now. And the parallels of what you saw as a child in Iowa, the making of textiles, and what you do for a living in Texas now. Yes. Um, I actually have an art degree, and I have been able to basically utilize that in my textile work here at the Alamo. You're also known for demonstrating musket firing during our weekend events. It just goes to show women on the frontier wore a lot of hats. Exactly. Um, I tend to shoot rifles, though, not muskets. The guys tend to do the muskets for us. But as a woman on the frontier uh, taking care of the the kiddos at home while dad's at war, you got to know how to take care of things. So there's two-legged and four-legged critters out there. Um, some you want to eat, some you just want to shoo away kind of a thing. Uh, but that's what the moms had to do back then, as well as taking care of the cleaning and the cooking and the sewing and the gardening and the farm work when dad's not there, um, as well as raising those kiddos and making sure they're well clothed. You had to be tough. People get a kick out of seeing Laurel fire. I mean, we already know that Laurel knows how to shoot and has experience inside and outside of work with guns like firearms, firearm safety. But I think just the visual of people seeing a woman in a dress and then they're firing exactly. a fairly yeah. long <laughs> firearm and it's the loudest firearm because um, it's rifled. There's rifling or grooves in the barrel and it's just loud. It is. Um, people get a kick out of it. It is. And Vincent, you embody the role of an 1830s doctor, but it wasn't medicine that got you into living history. It was actually woodworking. Mm-hmm. So I was working as a professional woodworker, making furniture, staircases, tables, whatever you uh, want we could make. But I was always interested in the hand tools and historic furniture. So actually, while looking to go on a woodworking museum vacation in the East Coast and up to the New England area, I happened to stumble upon the Museum of Texas Handmade Furniture in New Braunfels, Uh, which isn't too far from us in San Antonio, and went up there and and became their resident woodworker, focusing more on mid-1800s German-style furniture, but eventually, having volunteered there long enough, came and worked some events at the Alamo, and a job opened up, and I decided to apply, and Here we are. Here you are. (laughs) Luckily. (laughs) What's the most common question you get about your 1830s medicine kit, and what do you hope visitors take away from the conversation? I would say probably the most asked question is, did they have any sort of painkillers or anesthetics? And the answer to that is they had laudanum. That was pretty much the the main one you would see, even though morphine had been around for a while. Uh, But laudanum is 10% opium and 90% whiskey, Now, doctors realized that alcohol was not good for certain surgical procedures, especially amputations. So instead of giving you laudanum, they would have you bite on a stick, uh, bite on a leather strap, or you could bite a lead musket ball. And this is where we get the phrase, bite the bullet from. Wow. And Um, when you show all the aspects of your medicine kit, it's everything from uh, basic medicine to amputations to dental care, it really runs the gamut. And yeah. I've heard you say it's all over. People the place. are amazed at what we had back then. Yes, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, 
you know, people think it's pretty primitive, but, you know, they did have things that worked. Um, but something, you know, I, I hope that people take from the conversations we have is, you know, studying the history of medicine is extremely important in that it helps us appreciate where we are today, almost 200 years uh, in the future. But if, if you look at, you know, 200 years from today, uh, they'll look at our modern medicine the same way we look at 1830s medicine and surgical procedures. And I think that's something that's really important, uh, giving people that perspective that, yes, we have come a long way, but, you know, we have a long way to go as well. Just imagine. Angela, describe some of the other roles that members of your team play for living history. So we have uh, skilled trades, and then we have more era specialists. I think most people up until this point have all had some sort of skilled trade that they at least dabbled in. So that could be everything from what you've heard um, from Laurel and Vincent of you know textile work, woodworking, uh, leather working, um, music. I mean, we've really had quite an array um, of skills on site. Uh, but then we also are starting to dabble in people specializing in eras as well. And so I would say most people up till this point have probably been more generalists where we have 300 you know, plus years to cover here. It's a lot. We don't necessarily do living history about every single era, but we want to do our best to cover what we can. And so, uh, for example, we have a team member right now who is really kind of leading the way in our U.S. Army, um, you know, quartermaster depot era interpretation, starting with the 1850s. And so he, of course, learns about all of the topics that everyone learns about, but then he's doing much research and, you know, looking into skill sets related into, uh, related to that era and will be the one to lead that charge. So we're just constantly looking for ways to keep moving forward and filling in gaps in our interpretation. This question is for all of you. Families are really drawn to the living history encampment in the Alamo Gardens. What is it about living history that makes learning so accessible? I think history comes alive with us. Uh, they see how they dressed. They are able to um, interact, like whether games, maybe they might get to help load the cannon, hold one of our wooden muskets and do drill with the guys so they can get a better feel for what the history is, whether no matter what the topic that we're talking about at the time. Instead of the, the listening to the history lesson, it's the active participation. Definitely. I mean, it's it's one thing to read about history in a book. It, that is important, definitely. Uh, but when you actually see somebody dressed in the period clothing, potentially showing you an object that we would have seen at this time, uh, even if it's a replica, uh, it makes history more tangible. Um, it's hearing it from somebody who looks like that, you know, people from that time period. I think that's extremely important. Uh, and people, you know, learn in a different way. Yeah, I, I really think it appeals to a lot of different learning styles. So, you know, what folks have already been saying, I mean, it's like if you're a kinetic learner, if you need to do something tactile, if you just need to have that human engagement, if you're a visual learner, I mean, there's really a lot that we hit upon. So we're really appealing to different ages, different types of learning styles. And I kind of liken us to being a bridge of understanding between the academic discipline 
of history. So the research analysis, the writing about it, um, and then the everyday public consumption. Could you walk us through the process of getting ready for a day of living history, whether it's your clothes or your props, all these details matter. We laugh because it's chaotic every morning, right? (laughs) So I don't know what you guys want to dive into. We do a ton of setup. I don't know if people quite understand how much we have to set up every single day. And then tear down. And then tear down. Getting dressed is a big part of it. I've seen (laughs) your outfits. Yeah, definitely. Well, a big important part of what we do is, you know, what we wear, right? I think that for me personally, that's one of the most exciting parts of starting the the living history day is, you know, today we might have the luxury of having a couple outfits to choose from and, you know, compared to the 1830s where they might have one outfit or maybe two if you're lucky, right? Um, but being able to, you know, think about what am I doing today and, and getting to choose what to wear, right? That's kind of exciting, right? Switch it up a little bit here. A luxury previous generations didn't have. Right. But I feel as though when you are able to put on the historical garb, that it does kind of change your mindset a little bit. Mm -hmm. You're ready to do something different and special. I think about one of our colleagues, Scott, who does 1770s Spanish Presidial Soldier. And so this is part of our mission era, that era of the Spanish Empire here in Texas. It takes him forever to get dressed in the morning because there's so much to lace up and there's just a lot of layers. And But as you keep putting each layer on, it really, I feel like, kind of teaches us every day because it gets us in that mindset of the lived experience of people in the past. And Laurel, you make a lot of the clothes our living historians wear, and you also weave items like yes. blankets. What have you learned about period clothing and the various colors used? A lot of the color program that you see actually started as a COVID shutdown project. So I'm like, well, you know, what might be a kind of cool thing to do is have a display board in the future of some of these natural dye products that would have been available here in Texas. And so I ended up doing uh, a lot of research back then. I came up and uh, developed a board for display over the next year and it has probably about a dozen or so different colors on it. And that's just the beginning. And these colors um, come from interesting places. Yes. So they're, they're natural products. There's no chemical dyes available till after 1850. And those are going to be expensive anyway. So a lot of people are still going to rely on those natural dyes. But we have like logwood, which is a tree that grows in southern Mexico. And you get purple from it. Um, the Spanish are taking a lot of these dye products that are not common in Europe back to Europe to augment the color wheel that they have available over there. And logwood's one of those things that they're going to take. And they're just going to take whole tree trunks, basically. Over in Europe at that time, really only good source of purple is a snail that's found in the Mediterranean Sea. Wow. And that is going to be buku expensive. So royalty and the church are the only ones authorized to have purple. Fascinating. Logwood takes purple to the common man. Angela, this weekend, the annual homemade Christmas event is taking place. It's a really fun way to get into the holiday spirit. What can visitors expect? Yes, so we uh, do this 
program every year. And like you said, it's really to kind of usher in the holiday season. We are doing uh, Christmas carols and we have a couple of our volunteers who are actually um, singing and playing instruments, which is always delightful. We do a little bit of storytelling. We're reading Twas the Night Before Christmas, which in this era is called A Visit from St. Nick um, or St. Nicholas. We have a variety of crafts that really harken back to the sorts of things that people were making during the holiday season in you know previous eras, and then also some skilled traits too. So a lot of different activities, a lot of different themes and topics. Overall, just a very playful tone for the day. Vincent, in what ways do events like Homemade Christmas make history more approachable, especially for those who haven't studied it in a while? So I think uh, one way the these different events make it more approachable is that, you know, it shows a lot of different aspects of daily life as well. I know one event that we host is Trades Day, uh, and Trades Day, right, shows people the trades, historic trades you would have seen at this time. And for me personally, uh, being involved in woodworking, it doesn't matter what era we're talking about, people need furniture. Um, so it's not only showing historic tools, uh, and talking about the people who would use the tools, but it's also demonstrating how the tools work uh, and showing some products, uh, final products, what people would be making. Uh, so I think it's important to have days like that, and it gives people perspective as, as to like the tools from back then compared to today. They're a lot different, but tools today come from you know what we had in the past. I'd love for all of you to answer this. Is there a light bulb moment that sticks with you where a visitor really connected with the history during your conversation? I actually do have one of those. Back in the days when I was a tour guide here, um, I was taking my tour around the, the cenotaph, and this lady just started crying. And I'm like, you know, what's, what's going on with her and everything? She's like, I just feel like I'm right in the middle mm. of the story. And I'm like, yes. self-fist bump kind of a thing because I wanted to bring the story to life and that's what hopefully I can do you know every day that's beautiful every time I've presented on just even simply the steps to fire one of the flintlock weapons or the steps to load and fire a cannon I think people just have this light bulb moment where they realize all of the work behind what went into this era of warfare. And then for me, one of the reasons why I think it's important we keep talking about these aspects of the battle is so that people can understand the actuality of what it been would have been like to have been here, you know, March 6th in the dark, trying to do your 12-step loading process, trying to load and fire these cannon with very few people. And, you know, the the belching of the guns and the smoke and the smell. And so I think when people understand these historical processes, it just, once again, humanizes it. It makes it real. It's now a lived experience that someone's gone through. And it's also just vastly different from the ways that people understand warfare today and processes associated with that. I think it's not uncommon for these light bulb moments to happen daily. Right. And, you know, that's important. Like we were saying, history is important to study and making it tangible through living history, you know, and accessible to people. You know, we have a lot of those little moments and that's really what makes every day, you know, worth it. And coming to work, you know, when you inspire people and you see that 
you know, the light shine in their eyes. We get to harness that power of place. So sometimes living history at open air, living history, outdoor museums is happening somewhere where they've kind of created a town or something based upon, you know, the era. But the fact that we get to do this type of interpretation in the place where it happened, in proximity to these actual activities in the battle. I mean, it's just harnessing that power of place. And, you know, it's really an experience you can only have doing this type of activity at a great historic site like this one. You are always looking for volunteers in the Living History Department. How can people get involved? Yes. So we um, have a wonderful website. If you scroll down on the homepage towards the bottom, there's going to be a link to get connected in regards to volunteering. There's a simple process. We make sure that folks are trained and comfortable before um, they're out on site. You um, have a variety of ways that you can volunteer here, but yes, we are of course biased um, about the living history um, component. And we really view volunteers as just part of, they're part of the team. They help us get things done day in and day out, and we're so grateful. And there are a lot of different things you can do here on site if you choose to do living history with us. And you can do it on your own schedule, too. Yes, yes. I mean, we are open you know, 364 days a year, just not Christmas Day. And we have the benefit of having people come from all over the world, which is something that many museums and historic sites have to fight for. And it just happens here. It's a real privilege. And this this history has an impact. There are a lot of ways that people connect with it. So I think it really does end up being a great volunteer experience because you say, see day in and day out just that impact from these interactions that you get to have um, all day long. Members of the Alamo's Living History team, Angela Wolfgram, Laurel Smith, Vincent Ianicelli, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. To learn more about this weekend's event, A Homemade Christmas, check out our podcast notes. We're also linking to different ways you can volunteer at the Alamo. Plus, to the Living History page, we can learn more about the encampment in the Alamo Gardens and exactly what times the weekend musket demonstrations take place. And we're linking to our Ask the Alamo videos that often feature living historians explaining their crafts. You've been listening to Stories Bigger Than Texas, the Alamo Podcast.